from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal from Malibu Film Society. Today we're talking about Blinded by the Light with producer, director, screenwriter, Garen DeChatta. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. I personally found Blinded by the Light really delightful. I was surprised by how much I cared emotionally and was so totally invested by the end of the movie. But it's a fun ride all the way through. It has great music by Bruce Springsteen and a lot of music from the 90s. It's music from 1987, specifically. Mm. 87, 88, 89. Now, I know that you originally came across the book by Safraz Manzur. Yeah. Who's the real-life journalist yeah. that this all happened to. Talk to us about the development process. So I was uh, a big Bruce fan, still am, ever since I was at school. I used to have a job in Harrods in the record department. And while I was there, this English chap said to me one day, he said, have you heard of Bruce Springsteen? And I said, no, I'm not a rocker. And he pulled out Born to Run, the album, and opened it up. And I was shocked by the cover because the cover shows this white dude and this black dude being really pally and friendly together and that was a very rare sight at that time and the only band that I knew that had mixed people in it was Casey and the Sunshine Band mm -hmm. so I was intrigued by that that cover and to the album home and that was it I loved the saxophone I loved the lyrics I loved the energy and so I became a Springsteen fan from then and then years later I saw an article in the newspaper written by an Asian guy Pakistani guy about Bruce Springsteen and what a big fan he was and I was like oh my god there's another Asian person who likes Bruce Springsteen in the United Kingdom and I got in touch and that's how Safran and I became friends and over our friendship you know we would spend a lot of time sitting talking about the river and the ghost of Chom Jode which was one of my favorite albums and then one day he said I'm going to write a memoir and he did and he gave me the galleys and I read it and said this is amazing I know how to turn this into a great movie but without Bruce Springsteen there's nothing we need Bruce Springsteen's permission to use his music otherwise you know we don't have a film so how did that come about Two years later, we had the premiere of The Promise in England and Bruce was coming and I got invited to the premiere. It was at the BFI, the British Film Institute. And I took Safraz as my plus one and we both stood on the red carpet excited about Bruce coming as fans and we mm -hmm. both had our cameras mm -hmm. and we were on either side of the red carpet waiting for Bruce to pass so that we could film each other with him in the same frame and then as we were waiting Safraz got Bruce's eye and Bruce looked at him and walked over to him and I came over myself and Bruce said hey man I read your book it's really beautiful and Safraz sort of freaked out for a moment. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. How did you read it? Where did you get it from? I don't know. And then I realized I had like three seconds to do a movie deal with Bruce right then and there. And with him was John Landau and Barbara Carr and Tracy Nurse, his team. And they were trying to push him along. And while Safraz, you know, was having this sort of, you know, hyperventilating fit, I just butted in and said, Bruce, I'm so glad you like the book. I'm Gorinda Chadder. I made Ben like Beckham I really want to make a film but we need your support you know will you support us now I said that in a very casual way on the day like I was standing this close to Bruce and it actually came out more like hi 
to Chadda. <laughs> I mean, Ben Delight Beckett. Oh, my God. I know you like the book. Can you help us? So it was a bit more like that. And then Bruce sort of looked at me and he looked at Safraz and he went, sounds good. Talk to John. Wow. And then he walked away and we were like, what? What just happened? <laughs> and then John Landers said, what? What are you talking about? What book? And then Safraz had a copy with him, gave John the book. And that's how we met Bruce and got him to do our movie. <laughs> that whole experience, it must have been almost an out-of-body experience. Well, it was absolutely thrilling on the one hand, but also completely anxiety-driven on the other. Because what we now had to do was write a script mm -hmm. that Bruce was going to like. And so that's what we proceeded to do. And Safraz had to go first because it was his story. And although he was a screenplay writer, he was a journalist. And he wanted to try and write his story down. And I gave him a tutorial on the Robert McKee three-act structure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I broke down Bend It Like Beckham for him into that three-act structure. And then he went off. And then at some point I took over. And, you know, it started taking shape. And for me, I sort of went at the songs very forensically. I knew that the words were the important part of this whole process to the lyrics of the it. songs the lyrics right. yeah of the songs so i started breaking down the songs in terms of the lyrical content and then i started adding the lyrics like they were dialogue into a scene mm -hmm. and so you were having sort of a three-way dialogue scene except that bruce was saying his dialogue in lyrics and singing it as opposed to it being a jukebox musical where you know we just had songs in the background that wasn't what we were doing you know we were absolutely showing how the words and lyrics of bruce springsteen and what he was writing about in the 70s about his own life and himself how that was relating to this 16 year old pakistani kid in luton a decade later and that was the conceit to show that he might have been 3,000 miles away but his experience were the same as this kid. Now, there was a point of departure where the story was inspired by Sarfra's story, but you decided to take it as inspiration as opposed to gospel. Yeah, because Safras's real story is very boring and it wouldn't have made a good film because he never spoke back to his dad. He never had a girlfriend. <laughs> he never went out. He never did anything. Never rebelled. Mm. Just sat in his room listening to Bruce and writing poetry. So who wants to watch that for two hours? But with all films, you know, that are based on a reality, you know, what we do as filmmakers is we take a story, you know, over a period and we reduce it. We reduce it to its bare bones in terms of drama in terms of emotion and then you work out what your big idea is what you're trying to say what you want to convey to the audience and then you start adding meat to the bones mm -hmm. and that's what I started doing it was very hard I said to Safraz you know it'd be very hard for you to do this because it's not you you've got to move it away from you and it's interesting because that isn't him in the film but after the film came out he sort of believes it is him <laughs> And it's funny on Twitter and everything, you know. It's the him he wanted to be. It's the him he wanted to be. And it's the conversation he wished he'd had with his dad, but never did. Now, I understand you wrote this with your husband. Yes. And you've been writing together since you yes. met on What's Cooking? That's right. My husband's from L.A. And so... Let's we, give a shout out to Paul. Paul Burgess from Redondo Beach, <laughs> further down the coast. He went to Santa Cruz and there he studied writing 
and film and theatre. And I met him actually at the Toronto Film Festival. He was in the audience for my first film, Baji on the Beach. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he was running a film festival in San Francisco. It was called NATA. It was the National Asian American Film Festival. And he said, would you bring your film there? And I said, absolutely. And so that's how we met. And then, you know, he had always wanted to write movies. And then he moved to England to be with me. And so it felt like the right thing to do would be to write, you know. And so we started writing together. And we're still writing together many scripts later. Sounds like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> well, it's 23 years of it now, so... Well, <laughs> but I mean, it is good writing with your partner because mm. you are able to recognize each other's strengths and weaknesses. And so when we write together, we don't sit side by side and write, you know, we each have a pass. So it's like we're having two passes at a script. So I'll write something or maybe not the whole script scenes and stuff. And then he'll come in and look at them and he'll comment on whether he believes them or not. And then there are times when I'll be writing something and then I'll say, OK, I, I got to stop here because we need this to be funny. And Paul's very good at writing funny things. In Bend It Like Beckham, he actually wrote some of the funniest lines, like when Kira Knightley's mum really doesn't like her daughter playing football. And she says, there's a reason why Sporty Spice is the only one of them without a fella. You know, that was Paul. And he knows the Indian community very well, having been married to me for so long. So he's able to jump into different cultures. He's Japanese-American. So we both share that idea of uh, valuing the perspective of the diaspora. That's where we come together. And ironically, my first film is called I'm British But and I made it in 1988 and you can see it on my website actually which is benditnetworks.com and I'm British But is the first film about being second generation British Asian and it's about identity and Paul's first film that he made is called Enyo Identity which is about being Japanese American and when you see both films side by side then you understand why we're married even though we look like we're from completely different parts of the world you know he features his grandma in it as a samurai warrior who <laughs> 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 wandering around her garden in Gardena with a samurai sword and a little dogs running around but he uses humor same as me and it's very heartfelt so we both have that sense of emotion and we both share the same politics and we both have the same kind of view of humanity and the kind of work we should be doing and I think that's the reason why it's worked for 23 years. How does it impact on the marriage? Well, it just means you're a partnership in so many ways. There are times sometimes when I'll be on the computer and I'll just keep going and he's like, leave it now, I'll come to bed. Come to bed. Or he'll be up early in the morning and be on a script and I'll be pleased he's up because I'm snoring away. I think it's wonderful because it's like having your best friend that you work with. And let me tell you, when you have kids in a marriage, I don't care what anyone says, a lot of romance goes out the window <laughs> because all you're doing is juggling constantly. And so when you also write together, it's hard. Sometimes when you're self-employed and you write, it's hard to say, OK, I'm going to stop now at six o'clock and I'm going to stop. 
But what we're able to do is, if we are working on something together, is I'm able to say, it's five o'clock, I'm going to go now and cook for the kids and go and do all that stuff. And he might carry on. And then I'll say, oh, what have you done? What did you write? You know, and after dinner, I'll go and look at his scenes. It's a tag team. It's part of our marriage. We always read things or see things or watch things and go, oh, that would be a good idea for something. That's a great idea for a movie. And so I don't know if we could ever be non-creative now. That's what we are. As an observer of what's happening in film and television right now, there are a couple of trends. One is the bicultural and emergence of many first and second generation Asian voices. Yeah, These are voices that are finally being heard. And at the same time, you have a track of music-driven features. We have Bohemian Rhapsody. We have Rocket Man, Yesterday. And your film is at the crossroads of both. Yeah. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> I think I've been telling these stories for a long time. I mean, I made Bargy on the Beach in 1994. So that was kind of one of the first films of that nature, what I like to call diaspora films, films that tell our experience in a mainstream sort of way. So I've been really doing nothing but that. But it is good to see those experiences being put out there on the big screen and the little screen because it's important for people to be visible. And that's one of the most moving things about Blinded by the Light is when you read all the comments on social media far and wide, the way people come out of the film crying buckets. Everyone says they cried. That's the first thing on social media. Everyone's like, I cried and I don't even know why I'm crying, some people say, but I really cried. And this one guy wrote that. He said, I just started crying and I couldn't stop and now I'm writing to you. He said on Twitter and I'm crying again. This is an American guy, a Caucasian. And I wrote back to him and I said, oh, I think you're crying because you just want the world to be a better place. And then he wrote back, and now I'm crying again. (laughs) It's very emotional, the film, in that sense. It gets you somewhere, especially if you do want the world to be a better place. But I think that a lot of the other comments have been, thank you for making me visible. Thank Mm. you for making me seen. So for me, telling those stories is important to tell them in a way where they're accessible to everybody. And so bringing Bruce Springsteen into that story was the way I felt to tell our stories, but through someone that the world would know and recognise. And so I had no idea about yesterday. I didn't know that was being made. I knew Bohemian Rhapsody was being made. And I kind of remembered Rocket Man was being made, but I didn't know that they were all going to happen at the same time, more or less. Well, although Bohemian Rhapsody was way earlier. Yeah, that was kind of not good timing, I think, on any of our parts. (laughs) Or maybe it's building. Or maybe it's building, yeah. Now, you started off in radio, you got into documentaries. There weren't any British Indian female filmmakers at that time. What made you decide to be the pioneer? I just fell into it. When I was at university, I'd taken a gap year and I went to India. I was working on a feminist magazine. The magazine was called Manushi. And there I read an article by a professor, Neera Desai. And the article was about images of women in India's media. And I was like, what the heck is this? And I read every word and a light bulb went off in my head. And this was before media studies and all that. And I just realised the power, the power of the camera to record and validate your existence and your stories. I realised that people like me were 
either absent from the screen or on the margins of the screen. And I said, okay, I need to change this. And the way for me to change this is to get behind the scenes. And I originally thought that journalism was the way to do it, to be in the newsroom. And that's why I trained as a news reporter and I worked with the BBC for a while. And being a journalist has been incredible. I mean, I still feel that I'm a journalist, you know. If I was ever anywhere where a story broke or something was happening, my first impulse is always to call a newsroom and say, this has happened and I'm here. You never lose that. But being a journalist, I think, has really helped in my filmmaking. How so? By giving me clarity of what I'm trying to say in a film and in a script and finding the best way to convey what I'm trying to say without always being on the nose mm. about it. But also, being a journalist, you need a lot of discipline because you only have a few words to say what you're trying to say. So you have to be able to say what you're trying to say very eloquently and efficiently. Being a journalist allows me to go into scenes and be very efficient with what they're supposed to be about. In terms of your dialogue. In terms of dialogue and in terms of the point of the scene. What is the point of the scene? If there is no point to the scene, it shouldn't be there. And then also it's true of editing when you're in the edit room. I think being a journalist makes me quite ruthless about what I keep in and what I take out. Right. Because if it doesn't serve the central story, I'll be the first one to say, let's take it out. Even if it's a beautiful steady cam shot you know that captures the sunlight in a particular way and and the actor's got a great performance in it and even if it's a beautiful shot sometimes if it doesn't serve the story and it gets in the way of the story i'll be the first to take it out and editors will be trying to keep things in and i'm mm -hmm. like no it's gonna go eventually you might as well take it out now in some ways, I feel a bit uncomfortable in describing your role and your position in the industry on the basis of gender, on the basis of national identity. But it's been so present in every film that you've made, whether it was What's Cooking or Bride and Prejudice or It's a Wonderful Afterlife or Viceroy's House, mm. which I know didn't play particularly well here in the United States, but was such an important story. Yeah, it was bought by IFC, and I think it's on their channel. But Viceroy's House was a very important film for me. It was why I became a filmmaker in many ways was to tell that story and that's the story of uh, the last days of the British in India and during which time India was partitioned and a new country Pakistan was created from what was my homeland the part of Punjab that my ancestors are from and my family suffered like many others as refugees who had to sort of flee with their lives to come over to the other side and I knew that I always needed to tell that story mm. and so when I did get to make it it was wonderful but a lot of films who had told that story before me focused on the violence that took place and there was terrible mm. violence mm -hmm. but I felt from my position that I didn't want to tell that story about the violence it was present and we talk about it but I didn't want to shoot it I didn't want to shoot Hindus and Sikhs killing each other as I was making it you know my children were quite young and I it felt increasingly that I was making this film as a mother. So it was about a very traumatic time in history. Mm -hmm. But I was absolutely making it as a mother. And a mother's role when there's a conflict is often to quell that conflict and get whoever's involved to apologise. 
and to see a better way forward in harmony together mm-hmm. rather than keep the conflict going. And so India and Pakistan have had three wars, so much tension between the two countries because of this partition. I felt that my role as a woman and as a mother was to make a film that somehow helped us move to a different place, you know. And it was a very important film too. Like my kids were there when I was shooting and we have this scene in the refugee camp. There's like a thousand extras in that scene. I mean, it's big. And I was walking down the set one day and my son was with me and he was only about six or seven. And he said, Mom, can we go home? It's so dirty and smelly and hot and I don't want to be here. I want to go home. And I said son, I'm here because I have to tell this story because it's about my grandparents and your great-grandparents. And if I don't tell this story the way I need to tell it, no one will ever know their story. And that's why we're here. And that's why I'm telling the story. And he turned around and he went, good for you, mum, good for you. And he gave me a big kiss and a big thumbs up. And, you know, in, the funny, in a funny way, that was the lesson of that film for me. Mm. was that little moment with my little boy walking through the set and him realising, the value. Were you at all intimidated? I mean, you were working with some very big names. You had Hugh Bonneville from Downton Abbey. You had Gillian Anderson. You had Michael Gambon. Uh, No, I wasn't. I'm not I'm not that sort of person that gets intimidated. I like to do my homework. I like to do my research. I like to come prepared. And as a director, you can't be intimidated. You're the captain of the ship and you've got to have all the answers and you've got to be the one who does know. Everyone else can be intimidated, but not you. I think that's a reason that I've sort of stayed working as a director for so many years in the sense of being able to make a living from it and part of that is because I'm quite fearless Mm. (laughs) but that's because I'm a Sikh you see and Sikhs are warriors you know I stand on the shoulders of people who have fought for all kinds of truths and justice and sometimes I look at what I'm doing and I'm going oh my god you really have to go back into battle on this one you know because every time you choose to make a film with a person of colour in it you have lots of crosses against because suddenly your film's small. Suddenly it's not commercial. Suddenly the majority of the audience won't want to come and see it. So you're told, you know, mm-hmm. by the powers that be. So in order to keep doing that, you have to fortify yourself. And luckily for me, I have my ancestry. Hey, this is Chris and Jenny from When Last I Left, another Kurt Co. Media podcast. And we have some awesome news for you. Super exciting. If you're anything like me, gift giving can be kind of difficult this time of year. I'm not like you. No, you're not. I'm really great at giving She's gifts. She's much better at giving you gifts. You want to know why? Why? I go to vicesreserve.com. Vicesreserve.com. It's the perfect place to get unique curated gifts that don't suck. Like cocktail kits, oh, cool, cool gadgets, oh, yeah. really great liquor. Mm-hmm. They don't stop there, though. They don't. If you use the code PODCASTVIP, you get an extra 15% off everything in the store. Everything is 15% off with the code PODCASTVIP. Everything at vicesreserve.com. That's insane. You should go now. I'm going to go as soon as I finish listening to this episode. Cool. Buy me something. I will. As a producer, director, screenwriter, you're in a position to 
generate your own stories. Absolutely. That's why I do it. I never intended to. I wasn't even supposed to be a film director and I became one. I wasn't supposed to be a writer. I became one. I wasn't supposed to be a producer. <laughs> but along the way, it was getting hard. It's hard to make films with people of colour. And I just found myself just slipping into all those roles because first the scripts weren't there. So I had to create the scripts. And luckily, I married Paul. And so we were able to do that together. And then when the scripts were there, people were like, oh, it can't be done. No one wants to see a film about a girl who plays football. It will never work, especially an Indian girl. Nope, not commercial. And so then you get involved with trying to raise the money because everyone says it will never work. And so everything I've done has been out of necessity, really, not like a burning desire to be a producer or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just getting those stories out. And like I said, we were always on the margins and my job was to put us centre stage. And on Blinded by the Light, you brought in Levantine films. Yes. Um, well, what happened was I was doing a pass on my script and Levantine had sent me a script and I was just putting together the finance. We'd had some pre-sales and I was talking to various people and I had a meeting with Levantine and of course in London, you know, your nine o'clock is five o'clock in the afternoon for us. So it was evening in England. I'd been working on my script all day on Blinded by the Light. And then I had this conference call set with Levantine uh, in morning LA time, evening there. And the script wasn't very good, but I kind of felt I had to jump out of my script and get back into that one to give notes. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, forgive me, because I've had my head in this script all day and I'll just jump into yours. And I gave them my notes and I said where I thought the weaknesses were and, and they agreed with me. And then Renee Witt, she said, so what are you working on? And I pitched them blinded by the light, mm -hmm. told them what I was doing. And she said, well, let's forget about our script. Let's finance yours. Mm. And that's how they came in and financed the film. Because they had such an amazing track record, starting off with Beasts of No Nation. Yeah, and, and Hidden, then figures. Hidden Figures. Yeah, absolutely. It must have been a good fit. Huh? It was great. And they just jumped in. So I didn't have to go around shopping it. But, you know, at that point, the film had been passed on by Channel 4 and the BBC. I thought it was a no-brainer, a film about Bruce Springsteen's music with an Asian lead having made Bender Light Beckham. But, yeah, I was sitting on two rejections right there. Filmmaking, it's not, yeah. uh, it's not for wimps. Right. <laughs> As you were making it, and you're totally immersed day to day. What were some of the challenges that surprised you to the point that you had to regroup and redirect and refocus? Well, the one thing about filming in England that you need to know is that the weather is never constant. You can never rely on the weather. And that's the hardest thing. So you can do one scene in bright sunshine or one take and then the next minute it's pouring with rain. You know, so you see all these English DPs wandering around with these little <laughs> filters going, wait, wait, let's wait for the sun. And then you're sitting there, a whole crew's waiting for a big cloud to pass. Then you get a little pocket of sun and then you're like, okay, quick, we've got about 30 seconds. Right, everyone, quick, 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 turn over. And that's filmmaking in England. I remember my first film, Barge on the Beach, there was a big master scene on the beach itself in Blackpool and it was pivotal this 
scene and we shot the master in sun and then the sun went in and started raining so we were there for two weeks at that location and whenever it was sunny we would all run on the beach to do another part of the scene and then run back again and I think that with shooting in Britain you get used to that and you plan for that as much as you can but the opening of the film with the little boy writing in his diary the day we had planned to shoot that and we had to get a lot of permissions because where it was and it was near the motorway or the freeway as you say the day we wanted to shoot that it was absolutely pouring with rain Mm, and I mm. just said we can't I'm not doing this in the rain because there's about three scenes up there and it'll be horrible and so we were able to shift it to another day but like if it was raining that day I had no choice but to do it but Mm -hmm. I got lucky on that day and then another time when we were doing driving shots it was miserable it was cloudy as anything Mm. the windows kept steaming up but you know we just had to shoot it you right. can't tell now, but most films shot in Britain, you will notice that, that the, you know, the colour temperature changes a lot right. within scenes. What was the easiest or best part of the shoot? Oh, the best part of the shoot was all the Bruce songs. You know, shooting Born to Run and playing it really loudly and all of us singing at the top of our voices and just bringing Bruce alive in a setting in, in Luton, which really is the worst town in England voted by the people of Luton, you know. <laughs> yeah, the Bruce stuff was great. But also realising, you know, when we were shooting some of the stuff with the racists, you know, the rallies and stuff, you know, that was uh, very real for a lot of people and it brought back terrible memories of the 80s mm, and mm. what we and our parents had gone through you know that was tough but then there were other things there are scenes in the film where you see swastikas on walls and sort of racist graffiti and my English standby art director on the day he just was like I'm sorry I cannot put a swastika up I just can't do it and so the team said they can't be racist they can't put it up so I was like well give me the can I'll do it so I was sort of putting up racist graffiti and stuff with Corvinda the actor who plays the dad so the two of us were putting up swastikas so that was kind of funny and then there's a big scene with the National Front which is the right wing part and we did a big master shot of them and it was great and it was very scary and they were great extras. We did a couple and then I got a call to say, can you come down? because there's a problem and I went down to where the extras were and they just said we don't want to do this anymore we don't want to be racist we don't like the way people are shouting at us and it feels horrible and they were genuinely upset and I had to give them a pep talk and then I was like come on let's do some racist chanting and I was like you know doing the racist chanting like they used to do at the time and some people were videoing that and they were like wow that's really bad Grinda I'm like but I need the shots you know Mm. I need the reality this was the truth at the time we're getting to the truth so that was interesting but again it's always about the truth you've got to search for the truth the truth of the experience the truth of your characters and the truth of why you as the filmmaker is making this film what is it what are you trying to do and if you're searching for the truth and you're trying to show the truth you'll go to all kinds of lengths to make sure that you tell the truth but you also protect the truth if it's being compromised You've had so many people contacting you in social media to share just how emotional they got at the end of the film. Did you know when you had finished the final draft that it was going to have that kind of punch? Yeah. I don't want to minimize your experience, but for me, that is the thing that I like to do and that I've worked out 
how to do that now as a director. You mm. know, I go for the emotion and I push and push and carve and create my stories using everything, words, pictures, music, to get you to a point where I really want you to care. Because these are people that you probably think you have nothing in common with on the screen. And my point is to say, see how alike we all are? See, you're upset now, aren't you? But wait a minute, I'm going to make you laugh too. Give me a minute and I'm going to make you laugh. And then I'll come back and say, oh, got you right there, didn't I? <laughs> and I do that because I want you to be involved in mm -hmm. the film and I want you to have that emotional experience, which is what I always look for. Those are the films I respect and mm -hmm. love is the ones that I get emotionally engaged in. You know, those are the ones that I love. To me, one of the things that really helps make that happen is the music. And while you have the music of Bruce Springsteen, you also have the score in this film by A.R. Rahman. Yeah. Well, A.R. is the king of emotion. His score for Viceroy's House, I think, is just masterful. If you watch that movie and just watch it for the score alone, it's an incredible piece of work. So A.R. didn't have that much to do on this film because so much of the music was Bruce and other 80s tracks. But what little he did, he pulled out the emotions, which is what scoring does. He sent me a message yesterday saying that Billboard's picked out his one song as one of the songs to watch oh. for the original song category. So he mm. was very happy about that. Oh, outstanding. And then you had Ben Smithard from Downton Abbey yes. and others as cinematographer. Ben shot Viceroy's House as well. And yeah, he's a grumpy old English bloke. And uh, his crew's often complaining about the fact that he's so grumpy. But for me, oh my God, I get on with him like anything. And he was very excited making Blinded by the Light, just precisely because it was the opposite of Downton Abbey. It was the opposite of that kind of plush English period costume drama. Mm. You know, here was a great looking film about Britain in the 80s. But what we went for was amazing, sort of the graphic look, because that was what the 80s was about. So there's lots of lines, lots of horizontal lines, vertical lines in all the shots, you know, whether we're shooting a shop front or we're shooting the estate where Javid lives or buildings, you know, there's a lot of graphic imagery in the film. And what does that convey? Well, that shows the harshness of the period. It's very 80s. Mainly it's the hard lines, concrete lines, factories, blue-collar architecture, as opposed to plush, beautiful Victorian or whatever period English that often you get. I mean this in the best possible way. Does it help to be a control freak to do what you do? Uh, I don't think good directors are control freaks. If you're a control freak, I don't think you can get the best out of your team. I think what you have to be to be a good director is to be a good communicator and actually have some humility with what your team is going through, what your actors are trying to achieve, what your heads of departments are trying to achieve, what your crew's trying to achieve for you. And then your job is to help them do their best work for you. Mm. Everyone's there for you. You shouting at people is just going to totally undermine the process and lose respect. And then also controlling to the point where you're not you know, listening to their input, I think, undermines the process. Right. Because, you know, as people say, you know, film is a collaboration and everybody's creative inputs are important. If you're fighting, it's because you haven't communicated right. enough during prep. 
that might not have been the best choice of descriptives then. But especially when you are producing and directing and writing, it's all yes, yours. It's there true. There is that singular vision that comes through. Yes, but that doesn't mean that you don't appreciate other people's work in helping you achieve that mm. singular vision. Some people find it quite hard when I jump from different roles, but people who've worked with me understand that I do it, and I'm quite good at it. When I'm the writer, I am the writer, and I will write as a writer. And then suddenly when I'm the director... I will look at that script and go, who wrote that scene? It's dreadful. And Paul will say, you wrote that scene. And I'll go, well, it's not good. Can you change it? And he goes, well, you wrote it. And I'll go, yeah, but you're the writer. Can you change it? So, like, I'm able to put a different hat on. And then the same as a producer. So when money is tight or we can't do something that we need to do, as a director, I'll fight for it. And the line producer will say, well, it's going to come out of your production fee. You know, you're hurting yourself. And I'll go, I don't care. As a director, I need that. But then as a producer, when something goes wrong on a film set, that's where I jump into producer mode. Mm. When we're shooting, not before that. Before that, I help get all the money in. I secure the big finance because of my relationships. And then I have other people that come and work with me to sort of take it to the next level when I become a director. But when things go wrong, that's when I have to jump in. And that's when I become a producer, director and all of it, all at once. Mother, psychotherapist, <laughs> you name it, doctor. <laughs> the films that you've made, although they originate from a commonplace, are all very, very different stories. At the end of the day, you finish a project and you reflect back on it. Do you find that you are finding some sort of different completeness after each one? Well, they're all going to come from the same place because they all come from me and what I'm about. And it's true. I think directors make the same film over and over again. The themes that they're obsessed with at the beginning stay with you. But I think the wonderful part of being a director is that you can do films in different genres and in different ways that allow you to use your directing skills, but you're still kind of saying the same thing. Mm. And my starting point, the reason I got involved in the media was to combat racism and make us visible. And I continue to do that with every film I make. I just do it in different ways, in different genres. But you can always reduce every film of mine back to that mm. one thing. At the end of this one, at the end of the day, what's your takeaway on this film? My takeaway on the end of Blinded by the Light is that I really enjoy working with music and that I know how to, to use music in a good way in terms of storytelling and that also I can be emotional. I can touch an audience in a very human way. And that is what I bring, actually, is I bring emotion to projects, mm. for sure. Well, we'd like to thank you so much for coming and joining us thank for you. Hollywood Unscripted. It's not often that one gets the opportunity to open up and talk about the combination of your inner thoughts, what you think is the meaning of life and the purpose of life, and combine it with your craft. And I think all those things are definitely connected. And I've got to a point now in my career where I just feel very empowered by the fact that I've learned to not measure myself or what I do against the standards of the industry that I'm in and take my successes and my values through other means. And I think that's been a very liberating thing for me, actually. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. Well, thank you for joining us. The producer, director, screenwriter of Blinded by the Light, 
Gurinder Chatta, out now on home video. Thank you for having me. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurtco Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal with guest Gurinder Chatta. Produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the movies you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.